Nearly two decades after the U.S. launched its war in Afghanistan, as the troop presence was winding down in the country, U.S. President Joe Biden had this to say. Today, the terrorist threat has metastasized beyond Afghanistan. So, we are repositioning our resources and adapting our counterterrorism posture to meet the threats where they are now. His speech followed 20 years of U.S. actions taken in the name of counterterrorism under policies carried out by several U.S. presidents. Terrorists who oppress and murder innocent people should never sleep soundly, knowing that we will completely destroy them. Attacks against our nation will take direct action against terrorists. We will do what it takes to find the terrorists, to rout them out, and to hold them accountable. Those actions go by different names. The Forever Wars, the post-9-11 wars, or the so-called War on Terror. After the attacks of September 11, 2001, the U.S. created a new war infrastructure that is global in nature, massively profitable in scale, and now, after two decades, part of the fabric of our lives. So how did we get here? Over the next three episodes, we'll walk through the course of the Forever Wars to see how a post-9-11 national security apparatus came to change the way the U.S. interacts with the rest of the world. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. There's been a major accident in New York. York. The pictures here. The Secretary of State believe that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. The September 11th attacks unfolded on TV screens across the world for hours. But there were people in New York who witnessed both the attack and the response to that attack firsthand. Kevin Harrington is one of those people. My name in this story is Kevin Harrington. I also have a Sikh name, Sadhari Singh Khalsa. Uh, I live in the Bronx. I used to be a train operator. The train operator is in the front. People often call train operators conductors. They're not. And on 9-11, Kevin was one of the many train operators at work in New York City. What happened that day was I operated the um, number four line, the Lexington Avenue Express. So I made the 947 out of Utica Avenue in Crown Heights. By the time Kevin had started his trip that morning, he'd heard that a plane had hit one of the towers, but he didn't really know what was going on. So we all assumed it was like some small Cessna. We didn't think it was a commercial airliner would crash into a building. And then when we got uptown, everything, you know, as they say, everything hit the fan. Kevin was pulling his train into Manhattan's Fulton Station. It's about a block away from the World Trade Center. And then his train stopped. All the signals ahead of me went red. And my train went in emergency, which means that you can't move the train. And then I had heard all this, like a cannonade, like boom, 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 as I came in the station. And then a few minutes later, the whole station filled with white dust. At that point, a police officer told Kevin he couldn't let people leave the train from where he was. So he drove, in reverse, to a station further south to evacuate his passengers. So just as the final people were getting out, the second building fell down. And all this stuff started coming out of the sky. And I was talking to this guy, and we heard all this screaming coming down over the radio. 
and the a big like attaché case came flying out of the sky and landed right between us. And I I I I, I looked up and you see all this stuff is like in the air and everything. And this guy says to me, "The second building is falling down. The second tower is falling down." After the attacks. Kevin was recognized for his work on 9-11 by his employer, New York City's Transit Authority. A couple of months later, they wrote a bunch of articles about people and they put me in this newsletter and then they invited me to an award ceremony and they weren't too happy about me, you know what I mean? Because I have the turban, I look a little bit like, you know, out of their narrative of what a train operator should look like. So Kevin is Sikh and he wears a turban. It's a central part of his faith. And at that point, he'd been working for the Transit Authority for about two decades. He'd been wearing a turban the whole time. But in the years after 9-11... They told me I couldn't work in the public eye because of my turban. That happened in June of 2004. Kevin refused to take his turban off, and the Transit Authority assigned him to the rail yard, away from the public for a few days. Then in October, the Transit Authority tried something else. They asked Kevin and other Sikh workers to affix a patch to their turbans, one with the agency's logo. And I was against wearing patches on my turban because it could set a precedent where people could end up getting all kind of ridiculous logos put on their turban. And we sort of respect our turbans. The transit authority said passengers might not identify him as a train operator because of what he wore. They think it would clarify who I was, that as though wearing the, the uniform shirt and the pants and having a big patch on my shoulder over here and being in the cab, you know, operating the train, that I was not the train operator, that I was somebody who had hijacked the train, right? This is the theater of the absurd. So Kevin and some of his colleagues sued the transit authority, and they won. It became a popular case, and I'm happy to say that it ballooned into a fight for Sikh rights and for other people's religious rights. The Transit Authority came after me because I didn't fit their narrative. Because, you know, difficult times bring out the worst in people. And we found out what the worst in the Transit Authority management was. They were a bunch of xenophobic bigots. You know what I mean? They didn't rise to the test. And to use Kevin's words, a lot of people weren't rising to the test. Literally calls to jihad taking place right inside the borders of this country. And what do we hear from the other side? The possibility of camel riding nomads engaging in future terrorist attacks is deeply rooted within Islam. Kevin's case is just one example of what changed after the attacks. There were cases of discrimination, like his, There were acts of interpersonal violence, like skyrocketing hate crimes. And then there was the all-encompassing response from the U.S. government, what would come to be known as the War on Terror. Like many people in the beginning, I thought, surely this is not how the U.S. is responding. That's Hena Shamsi. She's the director of the National Security Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. Not because I was naive and didn't know about the fact that the United States does not have a great record on human rights always, but it still was shocking in those early years that reports started coming out from amazing journalists and accounts about torture and indefinite detention. And so I essentially made a career change and tried to make a a career in human rights work because I was so 
appalled and horrified by the response and needed to feel like I could do something to help people who were being subjected to it. Henna's also in New York. You can hear the city in the background. And she lived and worked there on September 11th. Since then, she's been following and fighting the U.S. response she mentioned. And in the beginning, politicians and the president were saying it's a war on terror. The president at the time being George W. Bush. Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. War tends to unify people in opposition to something. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. And using that rhetorical device and labeling it a war did something else. It set up this indefinite global battlefield. What were the practical effects of labeling this a war on terror? Countries have come up with a system of laws, the laws of war, that countenance acts that would never be permitted in, in peacetime, regular time. We're adjusting our thinking to the new type of enemy. These are terrorists that have, have what no What we had and was way, a war on a common noun, an emotion, a fear, right? And so in the name of a war on terror, political leaders in the United States, starting with George Bush, took what was supposed to be exceptional, which can grant governments exceptional, extraordinary powers, and sought to make it normal across a range of actions and policies and programs that had devastating human rights consequences. And one of the defining characteristics is that those consequences were suffered mostly by Black, Brown, Muslim people, both abroad and at home. In the years following 9-11, the U.S. government built an entire infrastructure to wage this so-called war on terror. Dozens of agencies charged with homeland security. They created brand new government agencies law enforcement officers and, and completely upended the way we travel. Carry on bags or they gave the government broad new surveillance powers. When a president can sign a bill, he knows... We'll and established military commissions that suspended rights for people deemed unlawful enemy combatants. It's one of the most important pieces of legislation in the war on terror. All the while, they directed billions, eventually trillions of dollars towards militarization. Every weapon and every tool they need to fulfill their missions. Along with that new national security apparatus came a new language. These new phrases started to enter the lexicon, words that described some of the policies that would come to both define and obscure the actions the U.S. was taking abroad, like... The debased, debased euphemism for torture and cruel treatment, enhanced interrogation, right? There was a lot of debate around that term. Here's former U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft testifying in front of Congress in 2008 the reckless labeling of enhanced interrogation techniques that they are automatically torture does little to help our image overseas. And he went on to say, We have to do what's right. That's the first responsibility we have. And the second responsibility we have 
is having done what's right, we have to make sure we do our best to market it so that the world doesn't misinterpret it. You can see the consequences of the shift of language in that particular context. Torture is forever and always unacceptable, immoral, unlawful. By calling it enhanced interrogation, which sounds like a good thing, we had years of a debased debate in the United States about whether actions that government officials took and authorized to break the minds and bodies of our fellow human beings were in fact torture or not. And of course they were. But the debate still sometimes, unfortunately, in, in some contexts can continue. Then there were phrases like the targeted killing program. Targeted killing became a term that was used rhetorically to de describe essentially a program of extrajudicial secretive killing outside of the context of any recognized war zones that was unaccountable. And something similar for precision strikes. Both proponents and the skeptics about long-range precision strikes seem to think this was a, another euphemism for victory through air power. If you're going to have strikes, well, yes, let's all agree, it would be better to be precise than not. If you're going to be engaging in killing, use of lethal force in a war context, then yes, better to be targeted than not. But all of these terms were euphemisms that served to disguise and make more civil and potentially more acceptable terrible, terrible human rights abuses. But there's one policy that undergirds many of the U.S. actions abroad in the name of counterterrorism. So Congress had approved the use of force in response to the 9-11 attacks. And it was approved against those who were responsible for the attacks or for harboring the people who were responsible for those attacks. That approval is known as the Authorization for Use of Military Force, and it's notoriously open-ended. In the days following 9-11, the U.S. Congress passed it nearly unanimously, with one exception, Representative Barbara Lee from California. I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. The authorization was passed just days after September 11th, and every president since Bush has used it as a legal justification for operations in at least 16 different countries. That includes things like drone strikes in Yemen to military operations in Niger. But before it was used in any of those places, it was used in Afghanistan in October of 2001. So we all remember, I think, or if you were around then, you remember watching the news reports of strikes and forces going in. By December of that year, George Bush was laying out a new vision of the U.S. military in an address to cadets at the Citadel, a military college in South Carolina. We are fighting shadowy and entrenched enemies, enemies using the tools of terror and guerrilla war. Yet we are finding new tactics and new weapons to attack and defeat them. This revolution in our military is only beginning, and it promises to change the face of battle. Afghanistan has been a proving ground for this new approach. 
What President Bush did in that speech was to describe a start to the lawlessness that would be characteristic of this era. And that new approach, we did not know, those of us watching at the time, exactly what it would encompass. The U.S. government tried a lot of new things in Afghanistan, like the first ever U.S. remotely operated drone strike, targeting and missing former Taliban leader Mullah Omar. And there were other firsts. Afghanistan was one of the first places that the United States systematic policy of state-sponsored torture began to be carried out. Torture would come to be carried out both by the military, but also by the CIA. And the CIA had black sites in Afghanistan where people were tortured, subjected to its program, where people died in U.S. custody. Afghan men died in U.S. custody. These choices were signed off by some of the highest ranks of the U.S. government, including then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. And people in the U.S. tried to make him take responsibility. Both in public opinion and in the courts. You represented a group of Afghan and Iraqi torture victims, right? In a case against then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. What was it like to hear from your clients in Afghanistan? What, What were they telling you? We went to Afghanistan to meet with our clients and to hear more from them. And it's hard to encapsulate those days of emotion and anger and sorrow that followed. Some of the smaller things stand out to me. We'd wanted to be welcoming to our clients and create a safe space for them to be able to talk, recognizing that we were coming from America, you know, the the country that had done this to them. And so we had water bottles on the table and One of our clients balked and physically had a response to the water bottle. And it turned out that these water bottles had been used as part of the equipment that had put them into stress positions. You know, it doesn't sound like much, but they'd been forced to hold heavy bottles while shackled and as punishment for hours and hours and hours upon end. Oh, wow. That's just a minuscule part of what happened to them. And it is those things that when I think about this and when I think about the last 20 years, and it's the things that come in flashes of humanity and kindness subverted. It wasn't that the U.S. was ever perfect, far from it. But it was also the case that there had not been a program of state-sponsored torture authorized at the very top levels of U.S. government and carried out by military and CIA. I think what makes some of this so much more bizarre is that at this time, at least in the U.S., we also were hearing a constant refrain of winning hearts and minds, winning hearts and minds, and that's what the U.S. was over there doing. And yet, stories like that, where your clients are are literally retracting from something that comes from an American because of what it has actually come to represent in their torture, did quite the opposite. 
when you look back at that phrase and at that tactic, what do you make of it? There was a real duplicity in those years that came to, I think, characterize a lot of what came after. On the one hand, our government set as a goal winning hearts and minds. On the other hand, at the same time, it was breaking minds and bodies. On the one hand, it said, the US does not torture. On the other hand was, if we do it, it's enhanced interrogation and it is necessary. You saw that happen over and over again with policies that were justified as necessary, effective, and to protect American security when they massively harmed our collective human security. So to use George Bush's words, Afghanistan was a proving ground for some of these policies, but it was hardly the only place where these practices were being carried out. And of course, one of the things that we started seeing soon after was that prisoners were taken from Afghanistan, but also in multiple other parts of the world, and taken to Guantanamo. So let's talk more specifically about Guantanamo, because in order to really and truly end these forever wars, one of the first steps has to be closing Guantanamo Bay military detention center. You have spent time at Guantanamo observing the military commissions, which are famously quite secretive. So as someone who has visited, what do you wish people understood about Guantanamo Bay and its role in the war on terror? I want people to know, or I guess be reminded, that Guantanamo was one of the laboratories for the worst abuses of the last two decades. It was a laboratory for torture, indefinite military detention, and unfair trials. There's such a discrepancy between how beautiful the ocean and the landscape is and how ugly what happens on that military base has been. That base has been controversial for a long, long time. Here's Donald Rumsfeld talking about it in 2005. No force in the world has done more to liberate people that they have never met than the men and women of the United States military. Indeed, that's why the recent allegation that the U.S. military is running a gulag at Guantanamo Bay is so reprehensible. I remember the first time I went as an observer to monitor the military commissions. I remember all of the security checks to go in, this notion that the US was at war here also on this military base in Cuba. One of the things that was part of the debate in the United States was whether torture was justified. I would be sitting in the military commissions in this courtroom and I would put courtroom in in quotes. And constantly in these sort of made-up proceedings, I would have Senator McCain's quote in my head. The question isn't about our enemies. It's about us. It's about who we were, who we are, and who we aspire to be. 
It's about how we represent That would be former U.S. Senator John McCain, who was famously a victim of torture himself during the U.S. war on Vietnam in the 1960s and 70s. And I would look around, and virtually the only people who were us, brown, like me, was the person in the dock, shackled, who we, Americans, had subjected him to torture. So who's them and who's us? That just really encapsulated for me in many ways that where it comes to torture and these terrible abuses, there's a level of dehumanization. Those harms continue, and we've had virtually no meaningful accountability for them. What kind of accountability have we seen? And what do you hope to see? Respect to torture, no senior level official has been held criminally accountable for approving, authorizing the torture program. There's been virtually no acknowledgement of victims and family members wrongfully killed in the lethal strikes program. And we're still working to end bulk surveillance, bias-based profiling, watch lists, multiple other things. I will say, despite all of that, part of my job and that of my colleagues sounds a little strange, but I'm in the business of hope. And hope and strength for me comes from clients, the people who have the courage to stand up and object, colleagues, supporters, communities who come together and over the years have said no, and we want the change. When you look back on why you got into this work, could you have ever imagined scenarios like the ones we've lived through over the past two decades and cases like the ones you've had to fight over these past two decades? You know, in the couple of days after 9-11, in addition to my shock and my horror, was this constant refrain of, please don't let your response make things worse for people. I wish that had been the case, and I wish with every fiber of my being that our government could have responded with fairness and justice and transparency and accountability and a commitment to fundamental human rights. And part of the work is to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And that's The Take. On the next episode of our series... I was surprised people didn't know about it. Even cursory, even the name, even the image, the iconic image. We'll look at historical amnesia and the ongoing struggles for accountability at the former Abu Ghraib detention center and what those struggles reveal about how war has changed since 9-11. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai with Alexandra Locke, Dina Kisbe, Priyanka Tilve, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, Ruby Zaman, and me, Malika Bilal. Tom Finton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. Special thanks to Allegra Harputlian, Jen Nessel, and to the Sikh Coalition. We'll be back.